Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. We have a king. We have a faithful king. He's got a powerful name, and we're diving into understanding the power of that name through the lens of this miracle that's been worked in the life of the lame man at the beginning of Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to pick up the explanation of the miracle in beginning in verse 11 of Acts chapter 3. So if you have your copy of God's Word and just want to join me in turning there, that would be great. So we've, we've seen this community of Christ followers being formed. The Spirit has come. He's come at Pentecost, and he has um, convicted sinners who have repented and believed, and they've been filled with the Spirit of God, and we've seen Christian community in action. And in Acts 2.43, we saw the apostles were working miracles, and in verse 1 through 10 of chapter 3, we saw an example of one of those miracles, and we saw last week that the example that is chosen is one of a man born lame because he was, he's born lame from birth. He's got this congenital birth defect like we all do. Right, We're, We come out rebels against God, not those who walk with God. He couldn't walk. And then in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, he is enabled to walk. And this second miracle in Acts provides the platform for Peter's second sermon recorded in Acts. Would you hear with me the word of God? While he clung, he being that, that man who was, was formerly lame and is now leaping and bounding and walking and praising God. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name. By faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given, this, given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore. And turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, 
from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Would you pray with me? God, if there's anyone here today or over in the gymnasium or listening online who has not been turned from their wickedness, who has not had the supernatural transformation by the Spirit of God on the inside, God, I pray today would be the day that you would give them the freedom to repent and that they would receive the times of refreshing that we have just read about. And God, that they would be able to look not with dread, but with great anticipation to the return of Jesus, your servant and our King. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in Peter's second sermon we get a a deepening of our understanding of who Jesus is as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We began to see that with his sermon to the Jews right there on the day of Pentecost, but he extends our understanding. In fact, this is like a, a masterful gospel project lesson where Peter covers the lion's share of the Old Testament in 16 verses of Scripture And the first thing I want you to see this morning in verse 11 and 12 is we must not misunderstand the miracle. They're looking at Peter and John and they should be looking to Jesus. As we turn back to this story, this formerly lame man is clinging to the men that God used to bring him healing. And a throng of people rushes to see them. Luke tells us they were utterly astonished. In fact, in the the Greek language, in verse 11, he holds that utterly astonished to the very end of the verse. It's like, I want you to know how these people are. They're beside themselves. They're bewildered. They're utterly astonished. They gather in Solomon's portico, which, as Peterson tells us, was a covered portico that ran the entire length of the eastern portion of the temple's outer court, known as the court of the Gentiles. Jesus taught there. We'll see in chapter 5 that it's the place where the first church in Jerusalem is gathering regularly to meet. As Peter sees the people wandering and staring at them in verse 12, he asks them two rhetorical questions. Why do you wonder and why do you stare? Now, rhetorical questions can be used in a variety of ways. In this context, what he means is you shouldn't be wondering And you shouldn't be staring. Sometimes when I'm teaching my kids sports and they do the thing that I told them not to do for the hundredth time, why are you doing that? It doesn't mean I'm really curious about why you're doing that. It means you shouldn't be doing that. That's what Peter is saying here. You you shouldn't wonder at this miracle as though the power of God is, is not possible or present in this moment. And you shouldn't stare at us. As though we healed the man. The miracle didn't come by the power that we possess. It didn't come by our piety or our righteousness or our faithfulness. I love that song, Come All You Unfaithful Come. 
Why do we need Jesus? Because we've been unfaithful, because we've been unrighteous. Come to the one who is righteous. It's not us that worked the miracle. It's the power of God working through his servant Jesus, the Messiah. Here's what Peter is saying to all the crowd that is looking at them. You are underestimating God and you are overestimating us. Don't wonder at the miracle. The Messiah did it. Don't stare at us like we did it. The Messiah did it. We, apart from Messiah Jesus, are nothing. And we could say the same for ourselves, could we not? I want to remind us today, church, that the only explanation for the true Christian life is Jesus. It's not doing good deeds. It's not moral improvement. If you're considering religion or church or doing better or God or Jesus, I don't want you to be misled about us today. It isn't us, it's our king. Anything good in us that you see, any marriage that you've seen healed or restored, anybody who's gone from being lazy to uh, purposeful in their work, anyone who's gone from being a deadbeat dad to a father who's involved in his children's lives, anybody that you've seen that happen in their life, if you want to understand it, it wasn't done in their power. It was the power of God working mightily in them. Christianity is not do better, it's what Jesus has done. Christianity is not try harder, it is about leaning ever more onto Jesus and letting Him, by the presence of His Spirit, lead us and shape us for His glory. Christianity is not about making decent men better, it is about God making dead men alive. And for that to happen, verse 2, we have to confront the gravity of our sin and recognize the glory of Jesus. You can't bypass repentance. You can't bypass feeling and understanding and knowing that you are guilty before a holy God and be saved. The people who were gawking at Peter and John needed to instead be glorifying King Jesus. So Peter helps them put the miracle into context. He tells them that the same God, the the God of their fathers, has now glorified his servant Jesus. He didn't glorify Abraham. He didn't glorify Isaac. He didn't glorify Jacob. But there is one that he glorified, and it is his son and his servant. Interestingly, that word servant in verse 13 can mean both, servant and son. It's Jesus that he's glorified. In other words, Jesus is not God's plan B. He is God's plan. Christianity is not Judaism 2.0. Jesus is not a departure from the historic faith of God's people. I can't stand it when you go to college world religions and they're like, we've got three religions that tie into the faith of Abraham and the patriarchs. No, we don't. There's one true faith that's connected to the patriarchs, and it's King Jesus. And there's two that are um, aberrations. They are false religions. There's one true faith of the patriarchs. Adam, excuse me, Abraham and I, Adam too, but Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who were they looking for? They were looking for the son of promise. The one who would serve the purposes of God and redeem God's creation. And the servant is Jesus. All others are false religions that end in hell. Jesus is not a departure from the historic faith of the people of God. God's covenant with Abraham, a a covenant with the 
promise of a great name in Genesis 12 and a land expanding to the north and the south and the east and the west. The promise of a fruitful and multiplying people drawn from among all the nations and enjoying God's blessings forever. All of that was about King Jesus. God's plan for Israel and the nations are coming to fruition through Jesus, the King who came to serve. We're celebrating Christmas. We're we're in the Advent season. At Christmas, God came down and He came to serve. He became a man to live a life and die a death that counts in our place. He came to conquer the death that our sin deserved through a real bodily resurrection. And Isaiah told us about this servant in the fourth servant song of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, 12, we read this, my servant will act wisely. He will be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now what's interesting about that song is you go on to read it and you read about his crucifixion. How is this one who is going to be bruised for our transgressions, who's going to be wounded for our iniquities, how is he going to be exalted? Because God's going to raise him from the dead. In other words, the healing of this man is proof that Jesus is the reigning, ruling, resurrected Messiah. It is proof that Isaiah's servant has come. These Jews don't need to keep looking for the servant. The servant's already shown up through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven. He has been glorified and his work that he began in the Gospels is continuing in Acts through his apostles and it continues now through his spirit indwelled church. And our aim, like the apostles' aim and the aim of the early church, what is our mission? It is the glory of King Jesus. I love to say we have three purposes at North Roanoke. We want to be Christ's church. We want to be Daniel's church, Paul's church, Ethan's church, Lynn's church, Hope's church. We want to be the church of Jesus Christ. We want to apply ourselves to what the Bible says the church should be and do because we are obeying and following our king. That's the first thing we want to do. The second thing we want to do is we want to impact the Roanoke Valley for the glory of Christ. We want people, even atheists, if this church ceased to exist tomorrow, we want them to drive down Peters Creek and shake their head and go, man, that's a shame. I wish they were still in business because, man, it was a blessing to have North Roanoke in the Roanoke Valley. We want to make a positive, discernible impact in the valley for the glory of our King. And lastly, we want to reach the nations with the transforming message of the gospel of Christ. And we do all these three things. Why? All for the glory of King Jesus. Why? Because if God glorified His Son, then so should we. But these Jews, thinking they were following the faith of their followers, were actually following the faith of their fathers, were actually doing the exact opposite. In betraying Jesus to the cross, they were betraying their fathers and the covenants with them. They were more guilty than Pilate because they delivered Jesus over to death. They denied that he was their king, and then they demanded his death, even when Pilate wanted to release him, verse 13 tells us. In verse 14, Peter again says, the second time he uses the word in two verses, that they denied Jesus. To deny means to disown. The servant and son you should have been looking for. The point and the purpose of everything that you've prized in the Old Testament came and you disowned him. You say, well, Peter's being awfully harsh. He's not being harsh. 
He's clarifying the severity of their sin so that they can appreciate the joy of the salvation that their saviors come to bring. And by the way, Peter is familiar with the sin of denying Jesus, isn't he? He's not talking about anything that he wasn't familiar with. After spending three years on the inside and being a a leader among the leaders, being the first one to identify Jesus as the Messiah, when Jesus is crucified, just as Jesus told him what happened, he denied him, not once, not twice, but three times before the rooster crowed. Peter's not saying that he's better than his Jewish brothers. But he is a whole lot better off. Why is he better off? Because he's forgiven. When the Jews denied Jesus, they didn't just trade a murderer for an average Joe. They traded a murderer for the holy and righteous one of God. Holy and righteous one is like this um, summary statement for who the Messiah would be. He would be holy and he would be righteous just like God. Because he is God. They killed the holy and righteous one that they should have been looking for all along. And then in verse 15, he adds this. If they didn't understand the gravity of the situation, the severity of the sin, what does he say in verse 15? You killed the author of life. You exchanged the life of the one who gives life for the life of the one who mercilessly took lives. What were you thinking? What were you, what were you doing? So far, Peter's sermon does not sound like very good news. Probably throwing tomatoes at him by this point. But we can't internalize the good news until we've internalized the bad news. And that's what Peter is sharing. Though we were not there 2,000 years ago, the truth is we're no less guilty. Left to ourselves, we would have all cried out, free Barabbas. We all insist on our own way. We would demand our own fleshly pleasures. We would have rejected Christ who came to save and to serve. But in verse 15, in the second half, things in the message begin to turn and we get some good news. Peter says, look, you killed him. But God raised him. Rather than foiling God's plan, God used Israel's rebellion to fulfill his plan. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God simultaneously proved the depths of human wickedness. They murdered the author of life. But also the height and the power of his grace and his mercy and his willingness to overcome sin and the death that it deserved. This is what is taking place in the healing of this man that they, do you see it in verse 16? It's the man that you see and know. It's not a doppelganger. It's not a body double. It's the guy. The same guy who was there at the gate. It's that guy. He has been made strong by the name of Jesus, in Jesus' name. Jesus, the glorified servant of the Lord, is working, has worked through the man's faith to make him new. Now, it's not faith alone that made him strong. It's faith in the name of Jesus. It is Jesus who made him strong. The name of Jesus represents his power and his authority. It is Jesus working through the man's faith who heals. 
even the man's faith comes, the verse tells us, through him or through Jesus. In other words, as Peter mentions the name of Jesus, faith is miraculously aroused in the man and he is saved, he's healed, he's blessed in Jesus' name. But the people listening had delivered Jesus to death. They had denied him. And the implied question when we get to the end of verse 16 is this. If Jesus is the glorified servant, if he's the one who's healed this man, and this man has been healed by faith in his name, what can we do about it? What about us? We killed the author of life. And here's what Peter says. Repent and be refreshed. It's our third point this morning, that we can receive refreshing from the Lord through repentance and faith. We must receive refreshing from the Lord. Some of you here this morning, some of you online, some of you in the gym, you're weary, you're downtrodden, you don't understand the despair of your soul, and the bottom line is it continues to be the weight of the guilt of your sin on you, and Jesus will take it when you trust in Him and repent. Verse 17, Peter begins to soften the message a little bit. Despite their great sin, he knows and God knows that they acted in ignorance. Do you remember what Jesus said from the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And some of those same people are now hearing this message and they're having the opportunity to be forgiven through faith and repentance. Now, ignorance does not mean innocence, right? They were willfully ignorant, despite the clear prophecies of the Old Testament, despite Jesus' clear words and powerful deeds, they missed Jesus and they called for his death. But something greater than their sin was happening at the same time. While they were willing to substitute a murderer for an innocent Savior, God was willing to substitute his sinless son for a bunch of selfish and spiritually blind murderers. Praise be to God. What God promised long ago through the mouth of all the prophets, verse 18, that as Christ would suffer, God fulfilled even through the disobedience and the rebellion of the Jews who are hearing the message. Don't miss verse 18. What was promised through the mouth singular of the prophets, plural. Now, how do a bunch of prophets prophesying over centuries have one mouth. This is what is known as the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Though there were a lot of men who made a lot of prophecies, they told the same story. They spoke with one mouth, with one voice about one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would suffer and die and be raised so that you could be saved. There's no errors in it. It testifies consistently to the fact that Christ would come. Through the prophets, both the direct prophecies and the the types like David, God foretold what would happen to and through Jesus. And now that what has been foretold has been fulfilled in the suffering and the subsequent resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, His Christ, the only thing there is to do is to repent. Did, Did you notice that it says in the text, His Christ in verse 18? Let me make sure that's verse 18. Yes. His Christ, not not somebody's Christ of their own invention, 
of their own making, the only Christ who can save these Israelites, the only Christ who can save the nations, the only Christ who can save you is the Christ who was prophesied by the Lord through the mouth of his prophets and the Christ who has come and is now seated at the hand of the Father. We don't get to make up our own Jesus. We don't get to go buy books at so-called Christian bookstores that deviate from God's Word and invent a Jesus of our own imagination. The Jesus that we worship is the Jesus prophesied in the Bible, who's come in fulfillment of the Bible, who is ruling and reigning in righteousness consistent with what we hear and read from the Bible. If you've not been saved by that Jesus, then you've not been saved. Now that the Lord's Messiah has come, they they have every reason to believe on Him. They don't need to remain in their condemnation. There's an invitation to repent if, if they will recognize that the formerly lame man has been healed by Jesus. They should believe. And if they'll not believe, that's a big problem. It's a huge problem because there's only one sin worse than murdering the author of life, and it's this, not trusting in him right now. You say, well, I, I would never do that. I would have never killed Barabbas. I would have never taken the life of a, a murderer for an innocent man. There's a sin, God says, that's worse than that. And you know what it is? It's not trusting in Jesus today. It's denying, it's delaying, it's putting off what God is speaking to your heart. That I'm a sinner, that I'm broken, that I've violated the law of God. And God sent His Son just like He promised He would so that you could be rescued and saved. The price of your sin would be paid on the cross. He'd be raised on the third day and you would trust in Him. And He would change you from the inside and motivate you and compel you to live differently in every aspect of your life. And you sit there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and you refuse the invitation. And you say, I'm not that bad. And here's what the gospel says, you're worse. As long as you put off to tomorrow what God is calling you to do today. So in verse 19, Peter commands his fellow Jews, his his brothers, they're called in verse 17, to repent and to turn back. Turn back to Christ. Repent of your sin. In verse 26, we, we see that this repentance is more than just group repentance. It's not like, yeah, we're bad, we're going to check out. It's every one of you who is turned from his wickedness. To repent is to, to stop worshiping and justifying yourself and to start worshiping the Savior who alone can give you justification and qualify you to stand before a holy God. Repentance includes the idea of mourning and and grieving our sin. And then this word turn back clarifies for us that repentance is, as Peterson writes, a radical reorientation of our life. It is turning to God and seeking reconciliation to express a new obedience To go from being condemned by God to being embraced by God. You know, it's a whole lot easier to to, to obey someone you love. It's a whole lot easier to obey someone that you've been restored and connected with. And Some of you are saying, I find it so hard to obey God. I find it so hard to trust God. I find it so hard to believe in God. I find it so hard to do what God has asked me to do. Do you have a relationship with Him? Is He your Father? Do you know His love that He gave His Son? That He didn't even spare His Son to redeem and to rescue you? Because when you're reconciled through faith in Jesus, it's a whole mindset shift. It's a whole heart shift. You see the love of God in Christ and you want to obey Him. 
what we find after these commands to repent and turn back are, are three promises in the text of Scripture. In verse 19, first, we see that those who repent of rejecting Jesus and instead turn to Him, what happens? Their sins are blotted out. Somebody say hallelujah. Your sins are blotted out. The word means erased, wiped away, gone, vanished. The sin that was on you through faith in Christ is taken and placed on Him. And it is gone. You can know today that the things that have been written against you have been erased by the blood of Jesus if you will repent and believe in Him. Secondly, verse 20. It's not just that your sins are gone, but the reason you're not refreshed in your spirit is because your sins stand between you and God. And when God takes sin out of the way, guess what else comes in verse 20? Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Though we live in a broken world right now, you can know the refreshing joy of belonging to God. You can get, the, get glimpses today of the healing power of God, even though we know that this world is, is headed for a, an end and a new beginning in Christ. We, we can get glimpses of it now. Even in adversity, God refreshes those who turn from their sin and trust in Him. You say, how does this happen? you got to go back to chapter 2 when He says, if you repent and believe, then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit who is everywhere will change your heart so that you can commune with God. You don't just have to go to an isolated temple whenever you can. You can become the temple of God. God will be on the inside. You'll enjoy Him on the inside. I, I love this. This word refreshment includes the idea, listen to this, of being revived or recovering your breath. Anybody almost, ever almost drowned? Anybody ever felt like you were suffocating or having a panic attack? Some of you this morning are having a spiritual panic attack. You're not breathing right. Spiritually, you're not breathing as God designed you to breathe, to Breathe in the presence of God, to know that God is my Father, He's my Savior, that He loves me. And what Peter is saying to these Israelites can be true for you. Get the weight of your sin off of yourself by turning from sin and trusting in Christ and receiving the refreshment that comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Only when your sins are forgiven can you breathe as God intends. This refreshment that comes by the Spirit to our pardoned souls then thirdly assures us that we can stand with confidence, unashamed, at the day of Christ's return. It assures us that Christ is coming. The third result, or the third promise that comes with repentance is the return of Christ at the time, or the season, for the restoration of all things, again, as the prophets foretold long ago. The new heavens and the new earth aren't here yet, but the healing of the man proves that they are on the way. For the king to have a kingdom, though, that has people in it, people, beginning with these Israelites, must repent. How's the kingdom going to have people in it if nobody repents? So he says, you must repent. In verse 26, Peter adds that Jesus was sent to Israel first to turn every one of them from their wickedness. 
Paul picks this up later when he says, do you remember in Romans 1 the, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation first for the Jew and then for the Gentile? This is unfolding right before our eyes in Acts. Jews are getting saved. We'll get to chapter 4, 2,000 more are going to get saved. Israelites have to receive their king for others to be grafted in. As we're going to see, these Israelites do repent and soon Gentiles are added, praise God. I'm glad Gentiles got in. Peter alludes to the inclusion of Gentiles when in verse 25 he says all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. Not just descendants of Abraham biologically, but descendants of King Jesus who've had a DNA, spiritual DNA transformation through faith and repentance in Christ. The healing of the lame man proves that Jesus is God's promised servant and son and Messiah. And to those who repent, God gives three things. Don't miss those this morning. He gives the assurance of the forgiveness of sin. He gives the refreshing presence of the Lord God Almighty through the Holy Spirit. And he gives you a share in the coming restoration of all things. Hallelujah. But what if you don't repent? That's the flow of Peter's thought in verses 22 and 23. He turns from the great promises that attend to repentance to the great warning about not repenting. You see, repenting and believing in Jesus is not like deciding between Domino's and Papa John's. I mean, everybody knows that Papa John's is better, but if you prefer Domino's, you're not going to spend eternity in hell for that decision. But with Jesus, eternity does hang in the balance. Peter takes us all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. He reminds us of Moses' prophecy. Now, the, the Jews, they like Moses. They like the prophet Moses. And he tells them, do you remember what Moses said? Moses said, there's going to be a prophet like me and better, me, better than me and greater than me. There's going to be a prophet like me who's with the Lord face to face. And Jesus, as we saw in John 1, wasn't just with God. He is God. You can't be more face to face than Jesus was with God from eternity past. And he's not just going to be a prophet who's like me and that, that he's face to face with God like Moses was. But he's going to be a prophet who delivers you from slavery. Oh, not slavery in Egypt, but slavery to the world system, slavery to sin. And when he comes, he's going to lead you out of slavery. And then you're going to feel like you're walking in a world that's a wilderness. You ever feel like you're in the wilderness? You ever feel like the world is dry and weary and full of suffering and death and carnage? It's because it is. But guess what our prophet does that Moses didn't do? He takes us through the wilderness and at his return into the promised land. He finishes the job. He's the greater Moses. Jesus, Peter, through Jesus through Peter says, I've come. The prophet like Moses has come. And here's what Peter says, but if you miss this prophet, there's no more prophets. You miss this prophet, there's no more revelation. Jesus is God's final word, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. It, it couldn't be clear. Jesus is the way out of slavery to sin. Every soul, verse 23, is responsible for what they do with Jesus. You either embrace him and resolve to listen to him, whatever he says. By the way, in your Bibles, if, you're, if your translation says the word listen in verse 22, guess what that word is? It's the word obey. I love that. In, in Greek and Hebrew, the word to obey and to listen, it's the same word. Which is why when we were raising our kids when they were a lot younger, we would say, listen and obey. 
You're not going to do a very good job obeying if you don't listen. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. To what? Whatever he says. Turn to him. Resolve to give him your heart and to put your yes on the table with no reservations about where he might send you, where you might call you to go. God, I'm all in. Just sign your name on the check and leave the amount empty. Leave the destination empty. God, wherever, how much, whatever, I'm all in for you. Turn to Jesus in this way or what? You will be cut off, destroyed from his people forever. In other words, church, the greatest sin, the unpardonable sin, is the sin of unbelief in Jesus. Only Jesus, not our good deeds, not our strong family heritage, not our super religious parents or grandparents or great grandparents, none of that can save you. So Peter closes in verse 24. Through 26, and he practically begs them to see the final point. We must not miss out on the saving opportunity that God is giving us right now. Don't miss it. Peter wants them to know that the days of a renewed hope that they had heard about in the prophets, that they have come. The days that the prophets are about are right now. The days for repenting and believing in Jesus aren't tomorrow, but today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul warns his readers about receiving the message of the gospel in vain. Don't let this sermon be in vain. Don't let the Bible on your phone be in vain. Don't let hearing the word of God be in vain. We'll say, how could it be in vain? Here's how it could be in vain. God could show you everything. He could send his son and you could still not receive him. Paul says, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Trust him today. Today. And he goes back to the Old Testament. And he mentions all the prophets beginning with Samuel. You say, I thought there were prophets before Samuel. There were prophets before Samuel. Jesus even calls Abel a prophet because his blood cries out for redemption. It cries out for vindication because he was innocent relative to, a bro- to his brother and murdered. But here Peter says, all the prophets beginning with Samuel. What is it? Why does he begin with Samuel? Do you remember who Samuel was the prophet contemporary with? He was contemporary with King who? King David. And what he's taking us back to is the Davidic covenant. He's saying you are the the sons of the prophets. In what way? You're supposed to receive what the prophets were talking about. They told you about a king in 2 Samuel 7 who was going to come from David and he was going to have David's throne and he was going to reign forever and his reign would never be interrupted. He has come. He is ruling. He's reigning in righteousness. Trust in him now. This is what your prophets were urging you to do. Don't miss out on your inheritance. Oh, by the way, you're also sons of the covenant with Abraham. But it's not good enough to be his biological descendants. You must repent and believe in Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham. He is the one through whom the promises of God to Abraham are fulfilled. So repent and believe in him. The covenant with Abraham told us that every family, including many Gentiles, would be brought near in Christ. And that all who remain all who trust in Him would enjoy God's forever blessing 
in the new heavens, the new earth, that we would enjoy his land, and it would be a worldwide land, and we would owe our lives to Christ. Church, the Messiah did the miracle. He did it in that lame man to prove that he is the Messiah and he has all the power of God and that if you will repent and believe in him, you can have a standing in the land when he returns. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent. Why? So that you can be forgiven, so that you can be refreshed, and so that you can eagerly anticipate and long for our King's return. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, I, I believe that between this sanctuary and the gymnasium and those listening online, God, there's at least one that needed to hear this message today. And I pray that you would draw him or, or her to yourself. God, is that we in just a moment stand and sing this closing song that anyone who does know you, does belong to you, and wants to be a part of a church that wants to magnify you, God, that you would, you would cement in their soul that this is where they're supposed to be and they would join us in the work of magnifying Christ our King. So God, whatever you desire to do in this room in these next few minutes, I pray you would do it and that Christ would be glorified. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.